The subject of all ages venues is a hot topic these days. With rent prices rising and many venues feeling they can't stay open without liquor sales, it seems hard to make an argument in favor of all ages venues. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rockstars. Today, we're talking to people who currently work at all ages venues and people who have started or want to start all ages venues about what makes them passionate on this subject. Are all ages venues crucial to the culture of a community? It's all coming up on the future of what? So today we're talking to Community Services Coordinator at the Regional Arts and Culture Council and board member of Friends of Noise, Andre Middleton. And we're talking to All Ages Champion, Todd mm. Fadal. Yes. Hi, guys. Welcome to the future of what? Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. We're, um, we're so happy to have you here, sitting on the same couch holding hands. It's very charming. It was really, it was a nice, you had cold hands and then I, I warmed them up for you. Ta-da. Well, it's cold outside. It's cold outside. It's togetherness. It's Portland togetherness right here in this studio. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought you guys here today not to hold hands necessarily, although that is an excellent perk. It's a side Aww. benefit. It's a side benefit. But to talk about the idea of all ages venues in Portland. And Todd, you have a very particular and interesting perspective on this since you actually ran an all-ages venue in Portland in the early part of this century. <laughs> 2000. Oh, God. Was it 2000 to 2005? It was 2000 to 2005. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. I just, I didn't get it to 2011. So what was that space? <laughs> Jeez, exactly. It was called Meow Meow. And we just did a little quick and dirty search and we found out that my band, the Hissy Fits, played Meow Meow in, on June 7th, 2000. One. You still have the t-shirt? No, doesn't that suck? I don't know why I don't have, I have nothing. It's, I'm useless. I'm a terrible, my kid will never believe I was in a band. There's like no evidence. <laughs> Your kid's like, no pics, no proof. Yeah, exactly. He's not impressed. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you know, being impressed by your kids is going to, it's going to take some work. I know. Having your kids even give a crap about what you do. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So Todd, you guys put on over 1100 all ages shows in Portland. How did that work at that time? Was that an easy undertaking? <laughs> I thought it might be. I, I went, went in thinking that I had, I had had some experience putting on concerts and I kind of have this Kermit the Frog demeanor to me where I just kind of, you know, make it work no matter what and see what <laughs> happens, let the chips fall. And for me, I got a really great opportunity. Some friends of mine were doing weekly meetings in this building right down the street from old Pine Street Theater. And they said, hey, we're not using this space. We'd love to rent out this space when we're not using it. And at that time, it was reasonable enough just in general to, to do it, that it was, it was a very doable thing for me to, to take that on. So I quit my job. My wife was pregnant at the time with our first child, which is, you know, just in hindsight, that might have not, not been the best planning <laughs> situation. But yeah, I feel like the thing that made it the easiest was that there was a space available. There were people that were wanting for me to do what, what I was dreaming of doing. And I had, I had gotten sort of a conversion, conversion experience going to the X-Ray Cafe in 1991 with some friends. And just noticing that there are local musicians that I can go see at their work 
you know, and then see them, you know, rip it on this tiny stage. There was just something really magical about feeling that. And then I, and, and ever since I had that experience, I wanted to kind of recreate that, you know, that feeling of being in a room together and that just like electricity. And so that's what I kind of attempted to recreate was that, that, that initial feeling of excitement and community that I felt at X-Ray. Did you need to start it with investors? Like how did you get the cash together to actually make the venue run? Well, as I remember, see, because a friend and a friend of mine and I started it together. It was a joint venture at at first. And I think we maybe had a thousand dollars and the people that were letting us rent the space were doing a church there. And that was what that was meeting on Sundays, and they had a they had a really good deal with the, the landlord to be there for a long long term, and so the amount of money that we needed just to to come up with on a month to month basis was easily covered by the show receipts basically. And I don't see that happening very much anymore. You know, I mean that's that's I mean to have a venue and to have a partnership like that is really hard to come by, no doubt. And I think that's that's kind of what was, what really, I mean, if it weren't for my friends, Ken and Deborah Lloyd, and the space being available, and just in general, you know, spaces in 2000 were just more affordable, you know? Well, right. I mean, it was a different city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. $1,000 in 2000 money is a lot different than $1,000 <laughs> in 2016 money. So, Andre, how did you come to this whole, let's start an all-ages venue thing? Wow. Um, about a year ago, I hosted a workshop through Rat called The Happening. And it was basically homegrown music forum. We invited a lot of music people, musicians, bookers, labels, venues to just come together and talk, get like kind of like a state of the state of what the music scene was like in town. And one of the topics of the breakout sessions that happened in the afternoon was what would it take to create a sustainable all-age music space in Portland? And out of that conversation, which made it have maybe like three or four people in it, Two groups, separate groups of people started talking like on a monthly basis, like you said, just to say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's put our heads together and let's just take some baby steps into saying what was the need, you know, and are we the ones who can maybe make it happen? Let's get some youth involved and let's start the conversation. And since then, you know, we've been able to work with folks from young audiences, My Voice Music, Rock World Camp for Girls, myself, a booker from Holocene. And we just started really just putting in, you know, just the groundwork to try and make something solid before we committed to a lease, you know, to say, let's try and just make sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's. And this fall, we actually got a grant from the Multnomah County Cultural Commission to actually put on four all-age shows next year. And our plan is to basically, you know, get youth involved and hopefully build a groundswell of interest and concern on a grassroots level by really involving kids. A lot of the ways that the Vera Project and Well Hall have done. So we're really going to try and do something from that angle of creating the need and creating voices and getting parents involved. And hopefully once we do the four shows in 2016, we hope to, you know, look for a space once we've gotten an audience that, hey, you know, hopefully like a Pied Piper, follow us to this location and hopefully we'll see what happens. What are the pitfalls in 2016 apart from the obvious cost of, you know, renting a venue space? What are you guys up against? What's what is it that makes it so difficult for people to start all ages venues in Portland? 
To be honest, I hate to say it, but I think space is the biggest issue. I mean, there's a real need for it. There's a real drive for it. Everybody we've talked to over the course of the last year has been like, oh my God, thank you, Jesus, please. You know, come on, like, what can I do? How can I help? You know, unfortunately, money talks, you know, and right now the money is being concentrated in bigger and bigger buildings. And, you know, we're hoping to get buy-in from, you know, the city to some degree or the county because we feel like, granted, you know, arts and culture in Portland is definitely overrepresented by people from the West Hills. I think that's safe to say. And I think that it's important for our model to see young people as an underserved population when it comes to the music industry in Portland. You know, I grew up in Portland, and for me, it was Satyricon. For me, it was the Blue Gallery, X-Ray. And all they chose at La Luna were our godsend. And just to see local bands playing songs that we knew, that we could hear, that we were sharing on, you know, our cassettes and the like, <laughs> that was such a magical time because it created an environment where people were coming here from Camus, Eugene, you know, Estacade or wherever, because, hey, I heard that this is where I could see music and I've heard these bands and I want to come. And I think that if we can recreate that energy of that communal joy in not listening to music on a headphone or not listening to music from Spotify or an MP3, but enjoying each other in that context, I think it's a win-win. And I would add to that, yesterday I was in the car with my daughter and her friend, and I knew that my daughter's friend really liked Black Sabbath. And I remembered that there is a venue across from On Point, the bank I go to, called Blackwater. And they do like metal shows, and it's an all-ages venue. And I said, did you know that there are shows going on? She goes, oh, where, at the Wonder Ballroom? Because she really loves the Wonder Ballroom, you know, because she saw her first show at the Wonder Ballroom. And I said, no, it's like bands that are coming through and touring and they're all like metal bands. And, you know, the shows are like five bucks. She goes, and she, her eyes got wide. And I felt like that's, that's such an anomaly to these kids because so much right now you see, a, you see a band and maybe you'll hear them on the radio and then the next thing they're playing a bigger space or they'll, they're, they're playing a cost, cost prohibitive, you know, location and right. the access is not there, you know? And even if you do like my son, just like he, he likes, you know, indie hip hop and stuff. And he went and saw a show at the Roseland, you know, and it's like $40 yeah. for a show. And it's like, he's like, you know, he's, he's 16, you know, not very many 16 year olds have their hands on that kind of money. And so to even just get the word out that, that is possible that you could have a free show or you could have, you know, a show where local bands are playing is kind of like it, it could really open up and be a new thing for, you know, young people today. That's one of the things that we talked about in our initial needs assessment was, was, is this already happening? And maybe due to our lack of knowledge or lack of connection, and obviously your daughter's lack of knowledge, it may already be happening. And how can we help marshal their resources together so that they maybe, so maybe it's, you know, is it utilizing social media better? Is it creating, you know, a specific location as far as like a, a website that can direct people? I mean, th that might be a big part of the solution is just getting the word out. And, you know, dare I say, even subsidizing. I mean, for some kids, three bucks, I mean, five bucks for a show, it still can be a bit of a heavy lift. And, you know, I think another issue is creating a space that may not be so genre specific. I mean, be amazed to how kids are so open to 
picking and choosing and sharing and being having their eyes open to different things. That's one of the things I loved about La Luna back in the day, because you could see Gore one day and see, you know, David Byrne the next, or you could see, you know, um, you crew or, you know, it's just an amazing space because they're open to everybody. You know, they could have a queer night one night or have a free show the next. And, you know, unfortunately, Portland's just the way that they've designed the space and the way, you know, gentrification and the way rents have been going. People are, I think, are becoming more and more isolated in their own individual communities. And hopefully all age music can be a way of starting to blur those lines a little bit more. Todd, when you had Meow Meow going, you guys put on like 1,100 shows over the five years. And what was the capacity of the club? Well, legally or... Uh... <laughs> Well, <laughs> you might be interested to know <laughs> that the legal capacity was 49 people. What? Wow. So basically what would happen was the band would show up, right? And then then staff would show up and we'd be at capacity. Right. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Everybody would be turned away at the door. No, we, I mean, it's like, that was sort of the nature of the space. It was, it, you know, we had, it was an upstairs space mm-hmm. and just so many barriers in that regard you know and we didn't really think of it and and we didn't honestly you don't go in saying we're gonna every show we do gonna be at capacity and over capacity and all this stuff and you know again in retrospect (laughs) it's in my 20s so you know forgive me but you know i i should have been way more careful than i was to make sure that the safety of everybody concerned was more on my on my radar but what i just wanted to see happen was people to feel alive the way i felt alive at the x-ray i didn't want people to just stagnate and in a scene where people feel like they've got a posture for one another and that they've got to look cool and they've got to be in the right places in the right you know the x-ray was a space where they went out of their way to make me feel welcome. Mm-hmm. And in a space, in an all-ages space, it kind of, it says right, right off the bat, everybody's welcome, you're welcome, you know? And, and I, I feel like, well, you know, our capacity was, you know, uh, 49 people, but we had, you know, if we would have kept to that, we wouldn't have had, hosted some of the, the groups we had. And they were all over the board, you know, hip hop to, you know, like queer bands to B-boy, B-girl shows. Mm-hmm. We had like Hot Cocoa Nights and Atari 2600 video game tournaments and all sorts of things because we had a space that just, it was like a clubhouse. Yeah. You know, so it was like, now that we have the space, what can we do in it? What do you, what do you want to do with it? And, and when you're a business model, when you're just a place that like, all right, well, we've got to, you know, push our numbers up or whatever. You're not thinking about that. Right. You can't, you can't afford to. And I think that's a great need for the organizers of, of any movement is that they have to, they have to think like they're a kid again, yeah. again. And what are the things that got you excited? And the business climate is just not really conducive to that sort of thing. And I think that part and parcel with, you know, the level of, dare I say, the fear tactics that seem to permeate our society right now. I mean, between insurance and fire code, and not that those things are bad per se, but, you know, I think that there needs to be a level of risk in any venture. And it seems like, you know, right now we're trying to legislate or at least try to, you know, believe me, I'm not, you know, a conservative says, oh my God, down with regulation. But, you know, you're right. When I'm in my 20s, I'm sure I did a lot of completely crazy bat stuff and I'm still here. And we need to hopefully give kids at least, you know, infuse them with that same level of possibility and risk taking to say, hey, guess what? 
we can do this now for a little bit, but you got to step it up at some point. And I think that part of the stepping it up is giving you an environment to make mistakes. And hopefully those mistakes are not lethal mistakes. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the truth. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, I mean, I could think of a lot of right now. I mean, there are house parties happening right now. There are parties in basements and backyards. And, you know, one of the models that we hope to do with um, with this eventual space is to create like a public access model where like right now with cable public access, you could go in, learn how to use equipment, and then you can borrow that equipment to make your own content. We'd love to do that with music, where kids learn how to use PAs, they learn how to use mics, they learn how to light a show, they learn how to do a sound check, and then they can take those skills back to their communities and create you know, almost like a feeder system where kids don't need to have a ton of resources to make music and to share their music and get feedback. And then hopefully they can start growing and say, you know, guess we're going to play that space now because we've been playing in our backyard for the last couple of years and we're ready to go. I I just was going to say that I also feel like it's a weird oversight amongst a lot of people. I feel like a lot of people don't, for some reason, see all ages clubs as places where you can actually make money. You're listening to The Future of What?, If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking today to Andre Middleton and Todd Fadel about all ages venues. And, you know, you were talking about kids having disposable income. It's like they have different levels of disposable income. Some kids have a lot of disposable income and they show up at shows and they buy t-shirts and they buy CDs and they buy everything. But you have to give them a place to go. And you also, for bands, it's a really good idea because you want fans of all ages. You don't want just fans who are over 21. Well, what's funny about that too is I found found that time and time again, I mean, you just have to have an excuse for a band to start up. Really, I mean, it's like, you know, you can, you could have a garage and a house on I-5, at least in the 90s and the 2000s, you could, you know, and just say, 
uh, yeah, we'll do a concert or two a, a month, you know, and any band would drive up there and it could, it could be in Roseburg or it could be in, you know, what, Eureka or whatever. And a band would play there because it was on their way up yeah. for this long drive and it wouldn't take that much. And I think that there's a, there's a sense of like a, a ceiling, you know, like of possibility, like you were saying that, that really we need to model it as people that have been risk takers to see, yeah, just go for it, you know, and give those moments to them. And I think that there is that sense. And as a parent, you know, I think that I'm starting to realize, oh yeah, I'm not really giving my kids this kind of this sort of this reckless thing that, that I felt like I had to, to that gave me the, the courage to try something like this. And to follow up on that, I think it's important also for us to start teaching kids that there's value in art and creativity. Um, you know, my daughter loves her phone and the MP3 player. And I'm like, did you buy that? Oh, no, no, I downloaded it. And we were taught, we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago talking about how we would price this and what we would be our free shows. And I was like, no, we've got to charge something. We've got to get kids realizing that there's value in this and they're going to appreciate that as they get older and when they consider becoming artists or creatives they're going to say no I need to get paid for this I need to be compensated and I need to have this be a living and an earning not just a hobby mm-hmm. not not just something that I'm doing for fun but something that I'm contributing and therefore is being contributed back to me so that's another big part of this is Huge. to make sure that whatever model we end up on that that's part of the sustainability of it you know i don't care how much fun it is i don't care how altruistic or how grand it is if it can't sustain itself it's not going to survive well and that's going to be true for them too i mean so to to paint this picture that is not realistic for them is is stupid but right. but to try to balance it with that sort of a sense of like go for it let's 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 see what we can do here i mean that has to happen from the top down you know as far as like spaces mm-hmm. spaces you know and people i mean there's parents that that talk to me all the time and and say they're in their 30s and they're like man it was so awesome that you had that club and i'm like that's great do you have kids you know i'm thinking do, are you passing that on are you passing that hunger to to buy into this you know this beautiful community of ours are you just sitting home and watching netflix are you what are you doing to continue that tradition of loving the city that you're in and supporting the artists that make it beautiful. And a big part of it also is loving it and also letting them go do their own thing. I mean, the first show I took my daughter to was a school of rock concert at the Crystal Ballroom. She was a little eh. Then, you know, a year later, we're, you know, watching Sam Smith at the Edgefield and she's having a great time. And now she's like, hey, I want to go see something, you know. And I had her and a cousin of hers down from Seattle here this last weekend because there was a, like a pre-college summit at Portland State. And at seven o'clock, we're all just sitting at the house doing nothing. And I said, God, I wish there was somewhere I could just send these two to have fun and I can come pick them up later. And I know that there are thousands of parents all over the region that are thinking the same thing. And it's just connecting them and earning their trust and letting kids know that you don't have to have every minute of your day micromanaged by your parent. But it was so, but it's so key too. I mean, for me, you know, when I opened Meow Meow, I saw it was, it was my, it was my honor and my, and also my privilege to see all these people that would come in. And for a parent, I'll be, I'd be outside of the venue and I'd see a parent dropping off like a 13 year old girl or a 13 year old boy. And I'm like, Oh my God, you entrust me to this. And, and considering myself as the club owner and say, and seeing that it, it gave me a real, a real, you know, a fear, but also (laughs) just the reality there of this, I've got to take this seriously for them, you know, and, and most club owners, 
I mean, they're booking from somewhere else or the higher booker or whatever. And they've got other, these, these people that are working the door that, that don't have that investment. And I don't have, I mean, I love all these people that are working, you know, but they don't have that. They don't have that same perspective that these people that are coming in, you know, and, and that, that does worry me. I'm like, cause I can't, I can't trust it. If I just drop my kids off somewhere necessarily that those, the people there are going to have their safety in, right. in, in mind. So right. there is legitimacy to that. And in all fairness, I mean, I mean, when I worked at La Luna, you know, everybody that was doing security, we were all the same ilk. You know, we, you know, as soon as we were tw old enough to sneak into the Satericon, we were there. And there was a real sense of family community between the employees there. And, you know, I could think of Justin and the guys from Monkey that were running that place. They did have that attitude, you know, and it, and it was definitely seen in how we handle trouble and how we handled success. And I mean, that's definitely a model that I know that I'm aspiring to, because like I said, I got a 15 year old who's going to be 16 next year and she's riding TriMet back and forth and she's keeping her eye out. And, you know, this is part of becoming an adult is learning how to cut loose, have fun, let off some steam in a responsible, fun way. It's got to be more, like you said, than getting off the couch and watching Netflix. God. It's so funny because I'm listening to this and I grew up in New York City where inherently kids have more freedom because nobody drives their kids anywhere. You take public transportation from the minute you're old enough to, you know, be like, bye mom. Right. I just went on, got on the subway. And, you know, I don't know how now as a parent, I'm like, God, how did they do that? <laughs> how did they just like, let me disappear down a hole every day and like not even. Yeah. My son turned 16 on Sunday. When I was 16, I went to the DMV and I drove to school. Right. It, he's never even been behind the wheel of a car. Right. Right. Because so. he doesn't have to. He goes to Jefferson. He has a free bus pass. Right. I mean, it's like, but it's funny because it's like, I'm behind this, this two-ton vehicle, you know, and I'm 16. I'm like, I, you know, I was entrusted with a lot, you know, then. Yeah. I mean, I feel like ch times have changed so much and I feel like parenting is so much more about micromanaging and mm -hmm. fear and worrying about where your kids are. Because I'm just thinking when, you know, one of the, like the second show I went to was the Ramones at the old Ritz in downtown in New York in the on the Lower East Side. I'm pretty sure my mother has no idea that I saw the Ramones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I, I got to get, I gotta get past my mom. My, my first show, my mom took me to go see Fishbone at the Cat Club in the Lower East Good Side. Mom. And um, I just wrote a post about it on Facebook on our new page. Friends of Noise is now like what we're calling our organization. We just made a Facebook page and we're starting to get people to tell us about their first shows. And, you know, my first show, like I said, was Fishbone. Joined the Army Reserve, moved out here. My second show was like a Def Leppard and Tesla at Memorial Coliseum. So that Powerhouse. is, and that's a part of it. You know, how do we hopefully teach our kids to love music, not to get trapped into a specific genre or a specific style? And I mean, that's an amazing sense of freedom right there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the freedom that you had from, like I said, I, me too. When I was 12, 13, I was taking a bus everywhere, taking a train everywhere, you know, taking classes here, going to summer camps, workshops. But I wasn't going to see live music because I think going into Manhattan at nighttime was just one <laughs> step too far. <laughs> Portland's not that bad. Portland's not that bad. No, I, I think it's, it's a shame that, you know, the dollar and, you know, the level of micromanaging has, has kind of stifled and prevented such an, an organic buildup and an organic way of sustaining that. And I think it's still there. I just think we have to get enough people together to really press people, pre to press the issue and make it happen. Hopefully we'll reach a critical mass and hopefully we'll get parents, you know, saying and kids saying, hey, I'm ready to do this. 
and they're hopefully linking up with other people, whether it's via social media, whether they hear something in the news, whether they're hearing this podcast. I mean, I think it's just a matter of getting more and more young people to own this process and to say, this is what we need. We went up to, a bunch of us went up to Seattle and visited the Vera Project last year. And that was the genesis for that particular space because the liquor license laws really put a kibosh in kids seeing live music. I mean, it's one thing for them to see Pearl Jam and you know Nirvana and Mud Honey and Poison Idea playing on a big, huge stage, but the kids couldn't see them even though they were hearing them on the regular. And we've got to flip that. I mean, like you said, you know, we've got to start growing new people that love and appreciate music and we shouldn't have to wait until they're 21 and they're getting drunk at a bar for them to experience that. I'm thinking that, you know, the love of music, the love of, you know, at school, I work at Rose City Park School at this alternative program called Access Academy. And I look at this, you know, I look at teachers and I look at just the whole learning process. And and so much of the things that I find myself doing, it's like, I'm just conveying information. I'm not building any love of learning. I'm just conveying this, you know, this information to these people, you know, and, and I, I feel like there has to be, people need to take the next step of like, where, why are you fascinated? What makes you joyful about this? What is, what, is, what was your best experience? And remember that and then harness that and then go out and, and help kids develop a love a love for the, the places around them, the people around them, and the music and the expressions that they make. My kids, when they were six and four, came up to me and broke my heart and built it up again by saying, Daddy, will you make music with us? And so I sat down with them and we just recorded 16 spontaneously written songs. And now, <laughs> if I try to ask them at 16 and 14, hey, you want to write some beats? You want to do some singing? They won't even do it because there's a sense of that disconnect because of that that unreachable pop aesthetic aesthetic that they don't they, that they measure themselves against. Whereas if you went to a punk rock show, you, your whole thing is, oh, I can do that. Right. I can do that. If that's all they're doing, I can do that. That you know? was the beauty of punk, right? Exactly. That was the whole point of punk was that anybody can do it. And then, you know, the minute you go to see a punk show, you're like, wait a second, I feel totally free. Like, what am I not, what what am I not am doing, I not doing, doing this? Doing why right. am I not on that <laughs> stage? <laughs> yeah, and same thing with hip hop. You got so many kids right now that would have a notepad and they're just writing and they're ciphering with their friends. And it was just, it was so very, I don't want to say street, but it was so very down to earth. It was so very accessible. And you're right. You know, when we put bands in, you know, halls, like I said, I love Wonder Ballroom, but there's so many venues that, you know, it's like that one layer of removal, you know, sorry, this is not accessible to you yet. Wait till you're 21. And then we really want you just as a consumer. We don't want you as an interactive participant. We just want you as a consumer. We've got to reinvigorate the notion and that's something that I'm not thrilled about America in general, Western society, is that art is seen as a commodity, not as a mode of expression. Right. You, know, you go mm. around the world, you've got artisans, musicians that are telling stories, that are sharing their experiences through their craft, through their creativity. In America, it's so much about, hey, how is this making money? Not for you, 
but for a larger organization that's got all these people that you have no connection with, and how are we going to get you in here to buy alcohol so that you can sustain <laughs> the rent that we have to pay? So hopefully an all-age scene takes it back to the notion of, hey, I'm telling my stories, I'm telling my hurt, I'm telling my pain to my contemporaries who I know are not judging me in the same way that my parents are. So maybe the songs that your kids want to make, they don't want to share with you just yet. It feels like though so much of it starts from kindness and from encouragement from their peers too and if we don't model that that there's a place that you can yeah. just express yourself without criticism right or just even just withheld temporarily you know criticism so that so that things alive can take shape linda berry who's one of my favorite graphic novelists and and speakers and everything she talks about that sense of being able to stand not knowing long enough for something alive to take shape. And, and that's what I feel like if we are more playful together, if we are able to be there for one another to the, to the degree that, you know, let, let that other person experiment and try something on and maybe it won't fit, but, but let's just try this. I mean, I remember shows that were put on where the bands just did one practice and then they played X-Ray, you know, it was just, or that's some like four song cover band would just like, Oh, we just love this music of Cindy Lauper. We're going to just do an all Cindy Lauper cover band night, you know? And it's those kinds of ideas where people go, yeah, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? And those are the kinds of things that I think that, that break down those, those walls that are up right now and, and you know, the whole advent of, yeah, of, of these superstars, you, the, the, the kids don't see, they don't see the ones that are, they're just kind of barely hanging on and barely making it. They just see, they just see, you know, Taylor Swift yeah. or the schmuck that can't play music at all, you know, and they don't see the stuff in between. Portland used to have this great video show called Behemoth After Dark. I love that show. And it was a mix of national local acts, people with, you know, Super 8 cameras, you know, whatever they could cobble together. And that created a vibe of, we're going to do it. We're going to get out there and do it. And, you know, I used to love 120 minutes for the same reason. You know, you'd never know where you'd see something from. There'd be this band from here or that band from there. They'd mix it up. And everything's become so prepackaged, so pre-selected, you know, focus grouped that right, <laughs> we just don't give kids the opportunity to enjoy and live in their mistakes and realize that they weren't really mistakes in the first place. Well, I'm really glad this conversation took this turn because I feel like this conversation about all ages venues can quickly devolve into just a very consumerist, you know, well, we have to run venues selling alcohol and, you know, you can't, and I mean, there is an aspect of truth to that. Like you guys have been saying, you know, the cost of a space is so much rent is so high here. If you're not selling alcohol, it's going to be really hard to cover your basic costs. But still, it's way more than that. You know, I think it that's is. what we've brought out today is that it's actually way more than that. And I feel like if we are wanting the support of people that truly see the vision of stuff, people, we have to be people of vision. We can't just be good business people for a movement to take place. We actually have to be people of vision to this. You know, I went up to the Vera Project and there was an all ages movement conference that my friend Kevin Erickson helped out uh, put together. And I was on a panel and he said, what made Meow Meow special? And I said to him that I really attempted to love everyone that came in the door. I like that. And I said, and I treated everyone. I, I, I had the sense about me that I needed family, not from some weird, you know, clingy way, but like I wanted 
the people around me to be my family. And sometimes I would just kind of default to just treating the the bands and the musicians and the staff like they're my brothers and they're my sisters or my dad you know sometimes like I said you know Calvin Johnson was my dad you know you know at some point or you know or Mira was my sister you know and I just I, I got that sense that everybody around me we were working together we and if and if it's nothing more than the best business model and the way your furniture looks and everything, then that's all it's ever going to be. Right. But if you treat each other like family, it's going to it's going to blow the roof off the place, no oh, matter yeah. where you're going to do it and no matter what city it's in. Right, right. Because family will family is unconditional. Family will see your mistakes and say, Psh, "I'm not worried about that." You got but it. If, but if it's a business venture only. We didn't make our numbers last week. Okay, we got to got to pull the plug because this is make, making my bottom line. That's right, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not making my bottom line, you guys. Oh God! Oh boy, there goes the plug. They're pulling the plug. <laughs> There's a lot of plugs in here too, man. I'm gonna get better. Get started. This could take a while. <laughs> oh Todd Vadel and Andre Middleton, thank you guys so much for being with us on the Future of What today. Had a great time. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was an awesome us. conversation. Thanks. Really was. Thanks, Andre. Thanks yeah, for thank holding you. my hand. Todd, thank hands. you. Woohoo! <laughs> Hello, today are you still here in my home? My dear, we wake every day But how can anybody stay when those lonesome tears Don't even wash away in the morning They don't even wash away in the morning Love could last But she got eaten by surprise In the pale moonrise And the nights gave up their night vision That was the night she lost her night vision was Sugar and Plastic by Tao and Mira. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Andrea Friedman is the talent buyer for the Vera Project in Seattle. Andrea, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you. So tell us how you got involved with the Vera Project to begin with. Sure. So I moved to Seattle only about three years ago. And when I moved up, I kind of just moved on a whim from Davis, California, where I was involved with KDVS and the radio and DIY scene there. And I moved up and had a friend of a friend that was working at the Vera Project. And I got in touch with her and said, I'm unemployed. I want to do anything possible and started interning at Vera for Tristan, who was the previous talent buyer. Stayed involved and now I've been on staff for about a year and a half Cool. So can you give us some history on the organization for the people listening who don't know about the Vera Project? Mm -hmm. So the Vera Project was founded in 2001 by James Keblis and Shannon Stewart and Kate Becker. And it was founded around the teen dance ordinance, which was this very strict draconian law in the city of Seattle that basically made it impossible to have all ages concerts. It had this very undefined it didn't define what a dance was 
and it made it incredibly cost prohibitive. No promoter was going to pay for all of the things. It was like $1 million in liability insurance, had to hire, I think, three police officers or something like that for any type of all-ages dance. Wow. Yeah, so basically there were a lot of different groups rallying, trying to get it repealed, and there was an exception for nonprofits. And so the Vera Project was actually pretty key in overturning the teen dance ordinance and turning it into the all-ages dance ordinance. Amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I read on the website that over 150,000 people have come through the doors in the first nine years of the Vera Project's existence. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I mean, we get tens of thousands of people every year coming through. So in its early stages, it was kind of moving around to different places, kind of like an amorphous DIY space. And in 2006, we partnered with the city. They were very helpful. And we've been in our space in the Seattle Center for about 10 years now. Yeah, and I've been there. It's fabulous. And of course, the Veer Project does a bunch of different things. It doesn't just host all-ages shows. It also has a ton of classes. You know, kids can come there to learn mm -hmm. everything. I mean, so many different arts. Yeah, so basically it allows any avenue that you would want to take in music or arts, but also just for musicians being able to learn how to screen print their own t-shirts, being able to learn how to screen print their own album art, learning how to be a recording engineer, a live sound engineer. We have a music journalism class, a DJ class. We're starting an Ableton workshop. The list just goes on and on and on. It's really incredible. Yeah. And so I was going to say about the 150,000 people is it seems like all ages spaces may be needed and wanted. Sort of sounds like, you know, it, there's a, mm -hmm. definitely a market out there for, for this kind of thing. Definitely. I mean, and the Vera Project is incredibly unique because there's really no other space like it that the shows are booked just like any regular club shows. And we get like that same caliber of touring artists, but also lots of like all locals showcases. And that alone makes it, I mean, not to, I don't want to use the word official, but it just puts it in that more like club level, I guess you could say, of all ages spaces. So what's the deal with, I mean, so it, when you think about it, I mean, you're the talent buyer. So when we, we look at it from that perspective of, mm -hmm. so, okay, you have a budget, you have a certain amount of money per show, mm -hmm. you need to pay the sound engineer, mm -hmm. um, you know, you have whatever the club expenses are, and then you can make a deal, you make a deal with the band or the booking agent for a certain amount for the band, and those can be door deals or they can be flat guarantees, right? Mm -hmm. With percentages. I mean, all of these things could be part of the deal. But I would say that, you know, the the people who have had problems with all ages spaces might say, you know, having a venue where you have to do that deal every night and you have to pay a band every night or two bands or three bands or four bands and there's no alcohol consumption, there's no alcohol sales, how do you possibly create a business model that works? So <laughs> how do you guys deal with that? <laughs> That's a really tricky thing about the Vera Project too, especially because, I mean, it's a great thing that the teen dance ordinance was repealed, but that also means that clubs like Numos and the Crocodile can have all ages shows and keep their bars open, which makes it, I mean, really difficult being on a nonprofit budget to meet those same guarantees for artists where it may make sense for them to play at the Vera Project, but I also just can't offer the same amount of money. 
But our budget is, I mean, we have a ton of individual donors. We have a lot of grants. And so our budget is basically shows break even. And our budget is supplemented with all of those other sources of income. Right. Yeah. That's great. What would you say to a band, you know, what's your pitch to a band why they should play Vera Project instead of Numos? I just try to emphasize what Vera is. I mean, it's such a special space and to be at a show where it's mostly volunteer run. We're teaching people how to be sound engineers. And it's also a safe space for everybody too, which for a lot of bands is really, really important. But I mean, also as a part of that, I mostly end up communicating with booking agents. And sometimes it can get down to a point where I just say, you know, I can't offer that amount of money. And a lot of times, you know, I'd say like half of the time they'll go with my deal and half the time they'll go somewhere else. But the sense that I get is that a lot of folks nationally really believe in what Vera's doing, which is really awesome. That is really cool. And of course, the artists can sell their merch at the shows mm-hmm. at Vera. Yeah. So Always 100% merch to artists. That's fantastic. And since we are mostly volunteer run, just the way that everything works, our expenses are really low. So there ends up being actually a much larger opportunity for payout just because there's not as much money taken out of that percentage deal. That's great. Yeah. I once stood at a merch table for a whole show for a band that was very, it had an extremely young audience. I mean, it was teenagers. It was, you know, the kind of show where cars would drive up and the dad and mom would drop Mm -hmm. off the kids and the kids would go in. And I have never seen more t-shirts sold in my life. I mean, throughout the entire show, the the merch guy was just never, never stopped moving. Mm -hmm. They must have sold easily 400 t-shirts. In wow. that, in the course of that one show, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. He was just pulling out boxes, and pull, I mean, it was crazy—just thousands and thousands of dollars worth of T-shirts. And I thought, now that is a an aspect of all ages shows that I think people don't think about at all. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of merch sales, you can get stuff at the merch booth that you can't get anywhere else for kids, and that's so exciting for kids. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I used to buy T-shirts yeah. all the time. When my favorite band, so many band shirts. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's such a big deal. So, I feel like people don't think of that as like another possible income source. Yeah, and also another like another element of that that's also very unique to Vera is that we do have our in-house screen print studio, and so for I would say. I don't know, 75% of our shows, there's an art poster made for the show and like a limited run of 40 or so screen printed posters. And that money is also split up between the band that's playing and the screen print artist. And that's another element where at another club, that would be a really expensive endeavor to go into like a limited run of screen printed posters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's usually uh, prohibitive. I know that I, when I was in bands and when I was managing bands, I was, I was like, ah, no, <laughs> no, thanks. We don't need to do that. <laughs> it's way too much. So what is your sense in general? I mean, because we're having this conversation right now in Portland because we've had real trouble here. We have no all ages venues. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, what would you say, to, you know, city council people (laughs) or whoever is the powers that be about, you know, the positivity and benefits of all ages venues? I mean, the teenagers that come through the Vera Project, it's really incredible. I mean, I think that it goes beyond having an all ages venue, but having a very inclusive all ages space that provides these educational opportunities in conjunction with having access to all ages concerts. 
I grew up in San Diego, which essentially has no all-ages scene. There were two spaces that I went to when I was in high school, but it also, I guess I was like tied into a community there, but it didn't quite feel the same as it does with all of these 14, it's about 14, I would say, to 25-year-olds coming through the Vera Project that get really involved. And I don't know, just providing that community space without calling it a youth center or something like that is really huge. Yeah, because youth center always means you're sort of, you feel relegated in a Mm -hmm. weird way. You're like, well, we're at the youth center. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) And And also just keeping it... I mean, I think it is really valuable to have older folks involved in the organization, for at least at Vera, that just comes through like our very long history and people that have been involved since the very early days that are still around. But having a truly all-ages organization that is youth-focused, but also has people in like their 30s, 40s, 50s that are involved that are able to like, you know, be mentors essentially and impart their wisdom on all of the folks that are involved. Yeah, it's a very special, special place. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. That was Andrea Friedman, the talent buyer at the Vera Project. Andrea, thanks so much for coming on The Future of What? Thank you so much. I want to take you to a place I know, a place that's called Canada. I want to take you to a place I want to take you to Canada. Canada by The Thermals. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. I'm talking today to Claire Gunville of Semi-OK Collective and Maya Stoner of the band Sabonis. Ladies, welcome to the future of what? Hey, thanks for having us. Hello. Hello. (laughs) So nice to have people in the studio with me. It's much more pleasant than just talking on the phone. I like it. This is more personal. It is. It's more personal. So today, as you probably know, we're talking about All Ages shows in Portland and the issues that we are having without having a venue that's a dedicated All Ages venue. And we've talked to some people already who want to start a new All Ages venue in Portland. And Claire, you have a collective that you work with that you are already working on putting on shows, right? True. You want to tell us about that? So we kind of, I'm not in a band, but I know many musicians around town who also do visual art. So it's a lot of crossover. But after Laughing Horse closed, there's a huge lack of space. So we are trying to just foster the environment of putting on shows in your basement, wherever you can, make sure it's safe and people are welcome. So Maya, what's your take on this All Ages situation? To me, All Ages music is really important because... I first started playing music in the sixth grade. I went to like the rock camp for girls and have been playing in bands ever since. And it's not only important for people to be able to go to shows, underage people, but also for there to be places for underage people to play shows. Yeah, absolutely. What did you do when you were like, you know, 16, 17 years old? What did you guys, where did you end up playing? 
Well, thankfully, there were places like Laughing Horse or like the Meow Meow. They, I think the owners had a different place called the Food Hole, which is where I met some of my bandmates now, but like 10 years ago. And that was just like an empty room that you could play in. <laughs> there's like, I don't even think there's a phone in there. But I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you'd be in a band with people that are over 21 and you'd have to stand outside and wait for your turn to, you know. The first time I ever met the gossip was 2000 and they were playing at the Crocodile in Seattle and the Crocodile was over 21 at the time and they had to stay in the green room all night long off to the side of the stage, which in the old days was literally like this horrible box. They were not let out except when they walked on stage and played and then they came back and had to sit in the little box. It was so embarrassing because none (laughs) of them were 21. Now, don't mind me asking, but how old are you now? Because you really don't look like you could be much more than 21. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm 24. Wow. Awesome. Claire? I'm I'm 20. Oh, so you check it out. I, I don't tell anybody. I don't never tell anybody my age. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I'm busy. I can't go to that bar with you because <laughs> I'm busy. Because I'm busy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this is still an active reality for you, this uh, this whole over 21 thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So how does that work out? Because for someone like you who's really embroiled in the whole scene. Well, I've definitely like stood outside the no before. <laughs> Because you can't hold a beer outside anyway, so you just hang out and right, and you just like kind of pretend. Then like, but there's so many good bands still playing at places that aren't bars, right? But of course, it would make it so much easier if there was a place that you know, a dedicated place where you knew you could go to see good shows and you didn't have to worry about whether you're 21 or not. Well, there's there's downfalls with bars too. You know, a lot of places will put a cover on and then never pay the bands or it'll all go towards like the bartenders and it's kind of right it's kind of messed up sometimes it can be difficult definitely I mean in part with trying to make or like DIY events happen Mm -hmm. then possibly more money can go back to the artist right because this is like making music making art it's not cheap at all (laughs) if you want to like like pay somebody to master your stuff like that doesn't that's out of pocket (laughs) right absolutely and there's a lot of expenses for artists before they get to the level where they might have a label or any of that help so you know you have to record you have to master you have to do all that stuff definitely so a knowledge's venue would be a really cool addition to this town what about a place like wonder where they do have all ages shows but they split they split the venue like they have big shows, but like half the venue you have to be in like a little corral and you can't go upstairs, right? I think you can't go upstairs. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been to shows there and they're not that bad. <laughs> I don't know if I like the the economics of it, like I said. But. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I ever like minded the divide when I was underage or now. It kind of reminds me of when Slabtown was around. Because they, they also had a divide and they were very strict about it. And that seems to like always work whenever it's implemented. Right. I think it's more of like a code, like a coding thing mm-hmm. with the bars because I've heard that's also a really big issue. Like it's not that we can't find another all ages venue. It's how do you make it work? Right. Because everybody's down for it to be volunteer run. Mm-hmm. But then like when the time comes, like who's actually going to help us 
freaking run it. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's a lot of work. What do you guys think of a model like the Vera Project in Seattle where they ended up doing a whole bunch of other stuff, not just having shows, but, you know, having classes and having, you know, kids can go and learn how to become a recording engineer and stuff like that. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, that is a great model. I think Anaras does some other things like that too, like workshops and whatnot. They have a ASL workshop coming up soon. And it's really, really cool because it's just bringing awareness like, hey, you're privileged, but like we can help you fix that and like maybe be able to communicate with more people. But yeah, I love the Vera Project. I've been going to shows there since I was like 15. And gosh, they're always just the best. And I think that with that model, the only way to really make it work is if you have all those other like classes and other projects involved, not just the music, because although that would be awesome to have a place solely run by shows, it's not really feasible anywhere. Right. Unless you have a bunch of money to just keep it out open. Right. And you can trash the place. Some independently wealthy person can just open. <laughs> yeah. <a college> just <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. Uh, we talked a little on this show too. We talked earlier to Todd Fatal, who used to run the Meow Meow. And he, I mean, it was basically a labor of love for the five years that he did it. And, you know, they did a lot of great stuff, but it was tough. It's, you know, it's tough. And then the rents rose. I mean, that's the other problem in Portland right now is it's an expanding, gentrifying city. So rents, you know, when I first moved here, you could afford, you could live almost anywhere. You could, you know, travel, you could, you could make it on a coffee shop salary or on a, you know, a smaller income, you'd still be an artist. And now I think it's really quickly turning into something very different, sort of like many other cities in America have discovered, unfortunately. So maybe what we need to do is advocate for someone who's just going to be a big donor, right? <laughs> yeah. And out of the goodness of their heart. Do you guys have anything else you want to say about this topic? Support is, that's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah, you just got to keep going to shows and, can I say <laughs> And not be a <laughs> I, I also no. like... I think that if there were to be a venue, there are, like, Laughing Horse was volunteer-run, and there's plenty of people that wanted to keep volunteering, but they couldn't afford to pay the rent, and now it's, like, a boutique. But, like, once once something starts happening, I think there are plenty of people that would mm -hmm. be happy to volunteer, and I'd, I'd volunteer there. At this point, we just need a location, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I love it. Well, Claire Gunville from Semi-OK Collective and Maya Stoner from Sabonis, thanks so much for joining me on The Future of What? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> and that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Elliot Smith, Tao and Mira, The Thermals, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 